0: Well, good morning and welcome. If this is your first time worshiping here, I want to welcome you to Canyon Bible Church. It is our normal practice here to walk through the Bible verse by verse and book by book um, preaching expositionally. And Pastor Andrew has been taking us through the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, but he has, he's away ministering at our church this morning, so we're going to step away from 1 Corinthians and we are going to look at the book of Jeremiah, still preaching expositionally verse by verse, Uh, but we're going to be looking at the book of Jeremiah. We're starting in chapter 12, so if you have your Bibles, please turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 12. I'm sorry, Jeremiah chapter 11. I'm getting ahead of myself. Maybe I'm just a little bit too excited this morning. Jeremiah chapter 11. And we're going to read the first eight verses of Jeremiah chapter 11, so please follow along with me as I read. Jeremiah chapter 11, starting in verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Hear the words of this covenant and speak to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant, that I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Listen to my voice and do all that I command you. So shall you be my people, and I will be your God, that I may confirm the oath that I swore to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is this day. Then I answered, So be it, Lord. And hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently, obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, I brought upon them all the words of this covenant I commanded them to do, but they did not. I've entitled this message, Trusting God When Life Seems Unfair. I wanted to start this morning by speaking to you about expectations. It seems as though it's one of the things that is true no matter who you speak to, that everyone has expectations. I've been all over the country, I've been all over the world, and one thing that is true without question is that when you speak to people, everybody has expectations. It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter how old you are, it doesn't matter where you come from. Everyone has expectations. Some, some may be a little bit more far-fetched, but the truth is everybody has expectations. I know there's some of you in here that are newly married, maybe the first year or two. You have expectations of how your marriage will go, how good it will be or how, how little or a lot you will fight. You have expectations about your marriage. We have some students in here, there's expectations that you have about how your semester is going to go, the grades you're going to get, how difficult certain classes are going to be, and I'm sure many of us here have jobs. We have expectations about what our day will look like tomorrow, the interactions with our bosses and our co-workers, but this isn't just an idea that is uh, relegated to the secular life. This isn't things that happen apart from uh, our spiritual lives. We have expectations as far as our spiritual, our ability to kill sin, our ability to grow more and more like Christ. We have expectations bar our religious lives, our spiritual lives, as well as our uh, secular lives. But what happens when those expectations fall short? What happens when those things that you experience don't line up with the way you thought they would or the way you thought they should Well, one prominent figure that we're going to look at this morning who knows the pain of unmet expectations is the prophet Jeremiah. God had called Jeremiah to be his mouthpiece to his chosen people, and as he began his ministry and service to God, Jeremiah is confronted with the reality that must know all too well, that sometimes things don't go the way we thought they would, and they don't go the way we think that they should. Jeremiah does come face-to-face with this reality in the morning, and he provides a very helpful example of how you and I ought to respond when our expectations don't line up with our experiences and when life sometimes seems a little unfair. So, the text we're going to be looking at this morning is, is categorized as an Old Testament narrative. So, in other words, this is a story from the Old Testament so, our approach is going to be a little bit different than normal. It's going to be a little bit different than, say, First Corinthians because we're going to be walking through a story. So as we walk through, we're going to follow the contours of this narrative, and as we do, we're going to see three distinct sections that we'll kind of tackle. First, we're going to see the circumstances or the, the context that Jeremiah is facing. We're going to see Jeremiah's response, and we're going to see that Jeremiah is going to complain to God. Then, lastly, we're going to see God's response to Jeremiah. And then we'll end our message just by providing you with some application points from the text. So, Jeremiah chapter 11, the first eight verses, our first point Jeremiah's circumstance. But before we get into the text, we need to understand kind of the the circumstances that's surrounding chapter 11, right? We're jumping in 11 chapters into the book. So, we need to understand what's going on here. And the first thing that you need to understand is that there is a downward shift in the culture of Judah at this time early in Jeremiah's ministry there's an 8-year-old boy that comes to the throne and his name is Josiah he's a, a godly king we read about him in 2nd kings chapter 22 uh, but this young boy, he, is, he uh, comes after the reign of some very wicked kings, and during the renovation of the temple, the, they, they come across the law, and he reads it, and he, he reforms the nation. He repents. And listen to what Second Kings 23 verse 25 says about Josiah. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses nor did any like him arise after him. This godly king cleanses the temple. Previous kings had brought in idols, but Josiah removes all of these false idols. He institutes national reforms, that is, all throughout the land, the people of Israel have instituted uh, false idol worship all throughout the land. And so, Josiah begins the process of removing many of these from the land. Uh, he also reinstitutes the, pa- reinstitutes the Passover. Uh, the children of Israel had so disregarded their relationship with God that they weren't even celebrating the Passover, and Josiah reinstitutes that. But unfortunately, this godly king is killed in battle, and every single king that follows after Josiah is wicked. In fact, every king that follows, there's a refrain that is said about them throughout the Bible. And every king did what was right, I'm sorry, and every king that followed did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. So from the top down, there's a downward shift in the culture of Judah at the time Jeremiah is preaching. Secondly, what you need to understand is that Jeremiah is preaching a very, very unpopular message. And we saw what he is preaching in the first eight verses of Jeremiah chapter 11. Now, remember, this is what an Old Testament prophet was called to do. An Old Testament prophet was called to remind God's people of the stipulations of the covenant that they had made. They called them to obey, and this is what Jeremiah is doing. And in verses 1 through 8, we have four references to this covenant. That, the, those two words, this covenant is re- repeated four times in eight verses. In, in verse two, three, six, And eight, So we know that Jeremiah's message that he's preaching is the covenant. He's reminding the people of the commitment that they've already made to God. And in this section, he kind of walks through a little bit of of Israel's history. We know that the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. And in verse 5, we see that it was called an iron furnace. It was a very terrible time of of enslavement and, and abuse and mistreatment. But God hears their cry. And God rescues them from Egypt, and He brings them through uh, the the Red Sea, He destroys the army of the Egyptians, and He brings them to Mount Sinai, and it's there He enters into a covenant with His people. Now, we know the story, they break the covenant, they're a stiff-necked, hard-hearted people, and God has brought them through everything to the promised land, and because of their lack of faith, they fail to enter. So, an entire generation is killed as they wander in the desert. But the new generation comes up, and they are brought to the border of the promised land again. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, Moses reminds this new generation of this covenant. He explains this to them, and he spends an entire chapter focused on the blessings and the curses of keeping or not keeping the covenant in Deuteronomy chapter 8 the first 14 verses Moses lays out the blessings that they can expect if they keep the covenant that is blessing in the land victory over their enemies they'll be established as a holy people and the surrounding people will see that they're a people called out by God they'll they'll be able to see that there's something different about these people if they can keep the covenant obey the terms But this is what they can expect if they disobey in a section that's three times longer than the blessing section. If they don't keep the terms of the covenant, they can expect the curse of disease, defeat by their enemies, slavery, famine, plagues. They would live in constant fear, and ultimately they would be ejected. They would be kicked out of the promised land. So, this is what Jeremiah is preaching. This is the message that he's reminding the people of Israel. He's drawing their attention to the covenant, the commitment that they have already made to God. And he was proclaiming that they weren't keeping the terms. They were living in disobedience. They were living in open rebellion against God. But you need to understand, even though this was a very unpopular message, this is not something that people wanted to hear. This was a gracious act of God. God did not leave his people in their sin. He is sending prophets to them calling them to repentance, but in light of Jeremiah's preaching of the blessing and the curses that would come, the people still do not turn back to God. Listen to verses 9 and 10 of chapter 11. Again, the Lord said to me, a conspiracy exists among the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words they have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I have made with their fathers. So, they reject Jeremiah's calls. They reject Jeremiah's pleas to repent. So, not only is the atmosphere bad, and not only is Jeremiah preaching a very unpopular message, but Jeremiah makes enemies in doing so. And not just any enemies. He makes enemies... That are related to him, people in his own family. Jeremiah is told of a conspiracy to kill him. Read with me in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 11. "'The Lord made it known to me, and I knew. Then you showed me their deeds. But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know it was, it was against me they devised schemes, saying, "'Let us destroy the tree with its fruit.' Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be remembered no more." Look down at chapter 12, verse 6, "...for even your brothers and the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They are in full cry after you. Do not believe them, though they speak friendly words to you." So. Jeremiah has been told of this conspiracy. These people who are related to him, his own family, are people who are plotting to kill him. In this town, the the men of Anathoth, this is where Jeremiah is from. It's a small place just north of Jerusalem, a few miles. And the people here would have been related to him. So his brothers, his father's house, his relatives are responding to the message that he's preaching. And they think... The best way to deal with this is to take this person away, take him out of the land of the living. So, Jeremiah has just gone through a serious trial in his ministry. Because of his faithful obedience to the task that God has called him to, his own family is trying to kill him. And in a very human moment, we see Jeremiah complaining to God about the circumstances that he's in. We see this prophet of God Show us his heart. He doesn't hold back. And this brings us to the second point in our message. This is Jeremiah's complaint before God. And we see this complaint in chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. So, read with me, starting in verse 1 of chapter 12. "'Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper?' Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them, and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it The beasts and the birds are swept away because they said, He will not see our latter end. So, we look at this section, Jeremiah's complaint, and we see how Jeremiah approaches God, and then we see two questions that Jeremiah is placing at the feet of God. But before we dive in, we need to understand what the text is saying, but also what the text is not saying. In these verses, we see Jeremiah really struggle to make sense of his circumstances. We see him plead with God for understanding, but we don't see an accusation against God, and we do not see anger against God. And really, that's the difference between a biblical complaint like we see here in chapter 12 and a sinful complaint. It's always appropriate to come to God and plead for understanding, plead for 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 help to, to figure out, to understand why these things are happening. It's even okay, it's even appropriate to express to God your perspective on the situation. Express to God how you feel. And we saw that a few weeks ago in Psalm 13. But it is never acceptable to vent your anger at God. And if you feel like this, don't cover it up. Don't mask it. Repent of that and ask God to help you understand. But in these first four verses, we see this complaint. Again, I want you to notice in verse 1, notice how Jeremiah approaches God. He doesn't avoid his struggle, but he approaches God correctly. Verse 1, righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. His starting point is God's righteousness, God's justice, God's goodness. This is how he approaches God. And he is using very legal language here. He's not, he's not accusing God like I said. There's not anger. It's a genuine plea for understanding. And he wants to plead his case before God. This is how the Nazbi renders of verse 1. And I think it captures the legal language. Here in verse 1 of the Nazby, Righteous are you, O Lord, that I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. So here we see the prophet just saying, Okay, this doesn't make sense to me. I know you're good, I know you're just, so please, arbitrate this, this case, help me understand. But like I said, he offers two questions to God, and the first we find in the end of verse 1, why do the wicked prosper? Why does the way of the wicked prosper? And why do all who are treacherous thrive? Jeremiah raises what some commentators call the great problem of the Old Testament why the wicked people why are the wicked people living the good life and enjoying it and speaking of this uh, of these wicked people Jeremiah describes them as being hypocrites look at the end of verse 2 you are near in their mouth and far from their hearts Jeremiah is saying listen these why, why are these people prospering These people might be saying all of the right things. They might be acting in a way that might be okay, but you know as well as I do that as far as their hearts go, they are rebellious against you. They they don't love you. They aren't obeying you. But what's more to Jeremiah is that he knows who God is. He knows that God is sovereign. And he knows that if these people are thriving, ultimately, it's because God is allowing them to thrive. Look at verse 2 at the beginning of verse 2. You, this is Jeremiah speaking to God, you, God, plant them, and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. These people are prospering like a tree planted by God and sustained. See, Jeremiah knows his Bible, and he's hearkening back to Psalm 1 which further highlights his confusion on the situation. It's the one who delights in the law of the Lord who should be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And the one who delights in the law of the Lord should prosper in everything that they do. Yet it's the ones that don't love your law, the rebellious, the hypocrites, who are prospering. And furthermore, look at verse 4, they think that you don't even care. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds, are swept away. Because, listen, they said, he will not see our latter end. You know, God, these people who you're allowing to prosper, they think you don't care. Maybe, maybe they think that you don't see, but at the heart of the matter is they think that you're indifferent. There's complete disregard for you because they think they have pulled a fast one on you. Now, this idea, this thought that God is completely oblivious to the things that are happening on earth, this is very common. This is often the point people make in times of tragedies, and if you listen closely <clears throat> in times of national tragedy, national loss of life, you'll hear this refrain repeated. And it has, you know, different verbiage, but at the heart of it, this is kind of the the heart of what's behind this. This is what people will say. The God of the Bible would never be worth my praise because He doesn't care, because the God of the Bible is the God of indifference. Now, is that true? Is God aware of what's going on? God Do you see what's happening? It's a difficult question to answer, and it's the difficult question that Jeremiah is wrestling with right now. God, why do you allow the way of the wicked to prosper? This is the first question that Jeremiah asks God, but he has another question. We see it in verse 3. Why haven't you punished the wicked? But you, O Lord, know me, you see me, and test my heart towards you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. See, in this verse, Jeremiah is setting himself against those who are unjust. He's setting himself up as the one who is just, who is righteous. And he asks God, God, why haven't you done anything? And in the flip side, on the flip side, he's saying, if you haven't done anything yet, I don't understand why, But can you do something now? He says, now, pull them out like sheep for a slaughter. Lord, don't waste any time. They're wicked. Take care of them now. Now, I need you to grasp the big picture of what's going on here. Do you see the crisis that Jeremiah is in? Do you understand the confusion that is forcing the prophet to come to God openly and honestly? Jeremiah has been preaching the terms of the covenant, and according to those terms, the ones who are obedient to the covenant, they can experience blessing, and the ones who disobey the terms of the covenant, they can expect curses. But in this situation, who is experiencing the blessing and who is experiencing the curses? Well, it seems like this has been flipped up, up on its head because Jeremiah, the one who has been obedient to God, He is experiencing what seems to be the curses of the covenant, and the ones who have rebelled against God, they seem to be experiencing the blessings of the covenant. Jeremiah understands that there's a discrepancy here. This is not the way things should be because he knows the Psalms. He knows Psalm 1. This isn't how life should be. But I think that there's something deeper that forces Jeremiah into this confusion here. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 1. I think this deeper issue that we see that is catapulting Jeremiah into this crisis of faith is found in verses 17 through 19 of Jeremiah chapter 1. This is God speaking to Jeremiah. But you, dress yourself for work. Arise and say to them, everything that I command you, do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And behold, I make you listen this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you." We see here explicit promises by God to Jeremiah that seems to be at odds with what Jeremiah is facing. In other words, what God has promised to Jeremiah, what God has said will happen, doesn't seem to be happening. There's an expectation based on God's Word that says, I will be strong and no one will prevail against me. But what Jeremiah is experiencing is the opposite. It seems everybody, including his own family, is turning against him. It doesn't make sense. What God has said doesn't seem to be true. Now, have you ever been there have you ever read something from God's Word and, and thought, you know, that's just not true? You might not verbalize it like that, but you know that your current experience is not lining up with the way things should be according to God's Word. What you expect from the truths, they don't line up with day-to-day living. It seems somehow that these two truths, these, the, the, what I experience and the truth in God's Word, they're not fitting together. Listen to Psalm 34 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Maybe you've gone through something in the past, or maybe you're going through something right now. And maybe you read that and you think that's not true because I feel so alone that it's almost suffocating. That's not true. Or maybe you've read Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. Have you ever had a big decision to make, and you read that in God's Word, even though it's a proverb, and you think, "Okay, Lord, help me, I, I, I need you to direct my path, and all you hear is a deafening silence. John 4, verse 35, Jesus is speaking to His disciples and He tells them that the fields are truly white unto harvest, meaning there are people all over the world ready to repent and believe, ready to enter into the kingdom of God. Have you ever read that and then went and witnessed to your coworkers or your neighbors or someone only to have the door slammed in your face? You question, "Are are the fields really, really white unto harvest? Or what about this? Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Has anyone ever wondered if that was true? Where you sin over and over? Do you feel like there's no condemnation? Do you feel like you're complete in Christ? Or do you feel or wonder if God ever really meant to save you? Do you feel like Maybe God is just kind of tolerating you with a mild disgust until you get your act together. There may be times when your experiences do not line up with the way things should be according to God's word. And when Jeremiah faced these unmet expectations, it they drove him to God. And we should follow that example. We should run to God when we face things that seem to be out of step with what we read, but the question of how we respond to unmet expectations is still left unanswered. So I think our solution lies in the response that God has towards Jeremiah, and this is the third point of our message, this is God's response, God's response. See, Jeremiah is confused, and he comes to God with his complaint, but what's more interesting is what's more interesting than the circumstances that we find Jeremiah facing or his complaint is the response that we see God give towards the prophet. This isn't God the motivational speaker. He doesn't give an answer to Jeremiah's perceived injustice. Listen to how God responds to Jeremiah. This is the next verse, verse 5 of Jeremiah chapter 12. In response to the prophet saying, God, why is this happening? Wicked people are thriving. You've allowed it to happen. Please do something. I don't know why you haven't done it yet. God, help me understand this. This is how God responds. Verse 5, if you, Jeremiah, have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you contend or compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan?" Essentially here, God tells the prophet, things are going to get harder. That, that's God's response. He, he answers Jeremiah with, with two metaphors that he uses. The first is running with footmen. Now Now, commentators are split. This is either an allusion to a race or it's an allusion to a battle. But the point is the same regardless of which interpretation you take. If you race another man on foot or you battle another man, say, hand to hand, those odds, I think, are fair, right? That, that, that doesn't seem to be crazy to me, right? But, but what are you going to do when horses come, when odds seem to be uneven, when it seems unfair? He uses another metaphor of walking in a peaceful land. He says, and if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thickets of the Jordan? The thickets of the Jordan, this is a time when the, the river would swell because of the rainy season and there would be dense vegetation that would grow very rapidly along the banks of the Jordan. And here is where animals of prey would come and they would hunt. It was a very, very dangerous place to be. So God's message is, hey, if you're stumbling in a place where things seem to be very easy, when, when there's not a whole lot of danger, what, what are you going to do when I place you in a place that's actually dangerous? That's, that's God's answer to Jeremiah. Now, this is shocking. From what we know to be true about God, this response seems to be out of step with God's character. Jeremiah has just come to God because his family was trying to kill him, and God essentially tells him that his trials are only beginning, that they are going to get a lot harder, and to endure, because the worst is yet to come. That's his his answer. In this passage, I think culminates with this answer that God gives to Jeremiah. This is the point of the passage. This is what you and I need to hear as well this morning. Believers are called to faithful endurance regardless of the circumstance. That's the answer. That's how we respond to unmet expectations. Faithful endurance. Now, I can understand that that doesn't seem particularly encouraging. I can understand that. But I think it is. I think it can be encouraging to us this side of the cross. Whether you're in a race with another man or you're running against horses, whether you're in a peaceful land or you're in the thickets of the Jordan, this call to faithful endurance can be encouraging for us today. So, I want to end with three points of application based on this text, just three ways that this can be an encouragement for us this morning. And here's the first way. Number one, God sovereignly ordains all things. God sovereignly ordains all things. I've said this to many of my counselees. I'm sure I've said it before as I've preached, and I'm probably going to continue to say it because it's something that I need to hear and it's something that we all need to hear. Our circumstances are a poor judge of God's sovereign control. Things may seem to you like they are spiraling out of control, that things are falling apart all around you. It may even seem like God is unaware of the trials that you're facing. But regardless of you, what you face, you can endure. The things that God has sovereignly allowed into your life may be the loss of a loved one. It may be physical trials. It may be just an unsure diagnosis coming. It could be just silence from God. It could be depression. It could be a number of things. But listen, God is sovereign even over the things that are unpleasant. Your circumstances are not a metric for you to judge whether or God loves you or not. God is good. He is always good. And God is for you, always. And nothing can happen outside of God's sovereign control. So when things do feel like that and you, you are tempted to question, why would God let this happen to me? Does, does He really love me? Know that, yes, He does, and He sovereignly allows only the things that He chooses into your life. You can trust God with the things that you face. God sovereignly ordains all things. But secondly, a second way this can be encouraging for us is the trials we face have a purpose. From this passage, we see that the trials we face now are preparing for us the trials or preparing us for the trials that we will face in the future. And we don't know what those are. We don't. But we know that as we endure faithfully these trials today, the trials tomorrow can be accomplished or can be endured in the same way. The trials that we face have a purpose. They prepare us for future trials. Not only that, they're an opportunity for us to become more like Christ. Romans 8:28:29 often used verses. may be used to the detriment of some situations at times, but biblical truth, that is still true. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of your Son. So, everything that happens to you, it's ultimately for your good, And it's ultimately an opportunity for you to become more like Christ, to be conformed to the image of His Son. But then also, our trials have a purpose in that they are preparing for us something so much better, something beyond comparison. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and following. So we do not lose heart, Paul says to the Corinthians. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That is, as you faithfully endure God is preparing for you something that, that dwarfs the, 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 the trial that you're going through. It, it's not even a comparison. They're not meaningless. They serve a purpose. But the third way that this call for faithful endurance can be encouraging for us, number three, Christ makes our endurance possible. Christ makes our endurance possible. The reality is that you and I are not sufficient in ourselves to do anything, let alone overcome the trials that we face. Our confidence and our ability to endure is rooted firmly in our union with Christ, and this union guarantees that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, will complete it, will finish it at the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6. This isn't dependent on your strength or your ability alone. Listen, the same grace that God extended to you in salvation is the same grace that you and I need to persevere in the midst of the trials that we face. It's not up to you. You don't endure a trial because you're somehow tougher than the other person in the room. You endure a trial because Christ endured the cross on your behalf. That's the only way anyone is able to endure. It's not a measure of strength. I love the way Keith and Kristen Getty articulate this truth in their song, He Will Hold Me Fast. The first verse says this, when I fear my faith will fail, I'll just try harder. No, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. This is not because we're special, but because God loved us in our sin and sent His Son to die on our behalf as the perfect, perfect, sufficient, sacrifice that appeased the wrath of God that earned a righteous standing for a rebellious people, that's us, before a holy God. And this is a union with Christ, and it's obtained through faith in the finished work of Christ. This is obtained through repentance and faith. And this is what makes endurance possible, our union with Christ because He looked at the cross, and He endured everything. Therefore, He, as the author and finisher of our faith, enables us to endure everything we experience. Now, this passage isn't just a call to grit your teeth and get through whatever it is that you're facing. Life in a broken world is just that. It is broken. It is difficult. It's painful. And sometimes, We face things that we didn't expect that we'd be facing. We may even be tempted to think that the trials that we're facing aren't fair. But the truth is that God is good. He's sovereign and uses all things, even terrible things, to make us more like His Son. And we can have hope and we can endure because we know we are not alone. Because Christ endured the cross, we can endure anything. We can endure our, our trials for His glory. We must faithfully endure to the end regardless of our circumstances. May this be true of everybody here this morning. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we... We come to you, Lord, acknowledging that life is difficult. There are many in this room who are experiencing trials, uh, difficulties, pain, loss. The list can go on and on. Life in a broken world is so hard, and we acknowledge that to you this morning. But we know that even though life may not line up with what we expected, We know that in the midst of that, you are still good. You are always good. We know that you are with us. You do not abandon us, but you have come and suffered in our place. You know the trials that we face. You can sympathize with our weakness, and we look to you for strength. We look to you and ask that you would help us endure the trials that we're facing. We pray and ask, Lord, that we would faithfully endure to your honor and glory.